and welcome to episode number 345 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos, and in this week's show, the Boeing 737 MAX can finally fly passengers. Singapore Airlines installs their new first class onto all its A380s, and two pilots get into trouble for drawing a non-family show content in the sky. In the military this week, the U.S. Air Force continues to expand options for enlisted airmen and some officers to seek pilot positions and their first FA-18C from the Blue Angels lands in Washington for display at the Smithsonian Museum. Uh, we welcome to the show this week uh, guest Bob Mills to talk about the national championship air races and we also have the second part of the interview that me and Ned have done uh, with uh, um, the Faraday guys at uh, Duxford a few weeks back. So joining me this week uh, in the virtual studio over in the P2K Towers is, of course, the man who's not stressed at all ever. It's Matt Smith. Well, hello, everyone. We're having... Oh, hello. Somebody's just got an email. That's always nice. Uh... Yeah, we, I think it's safe to say things haven't gone quite according to plan uh, today, but there we are. I think we're away. It's all right. I lost your video there for a brief moment, but I think I got it back in time. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be glad when we get to the end of the show. <laughs> do, we need, do we need to make some serious investments in the uh, in the studio? Matt? I don't know. I'll, I'll look at it all. T- I'll look at it all tomorrow. I don't know. What's <laughs> going, I don't, let's just see if we can get through this first, shall we? <laughs> Anyway, hello uh, everyone. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yes. I haven't seen you this week on the roads, Matt. It's been uh, been a bit quiet without you. Oh well, th- well that's all right. It's uh, less for me to get wrong, then, isn't it? Really, mm-hmm. as I never want to. I've seen you a couple of times and given you a wave in the car. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. okay. It's just. I'll like... probably asleep at the time. Oh, great, lovely. Anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> and uh, joining us uh, watching this a film, week. probably, but we'll probably <laughs> I'll probably was. I probably was. Yeah. Um, no, I don't watch films and drive at the same Good time. Boy. Anyway, joining us this week, as always, it's the man who, uh, well, he's a fine connoisseur of wines, but he's also a connoisseur of fine ales, as in the Speedbird 100 beer. So, <laughs> welcome onto the show, Neville Bounds. Thanks very much. Yes, it's one of my favourites, actually. And, um, oh, uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, mm, yes. Strange, I couldn't hear myself or something for a reason there. Uh, yes, all very good here, apart from the fact I've spent the last day and a half trying to get a wireless printer working again which had been working perfectly okay for the last four years so it needed some fiddling and some percussive maintenance but right uh, I'm P- to say, percussive does that involve a hammer a percussive yes maintenance? it's, it's right. now working fine <laughs> are you are you fully onto your fiber to the door thingy oh yes broadband? absolutely yeah I can even see the light if I undo the mm, thing at the end okay. of the uh, oh, Do you know uh, what? I haven't done that. I should do the same. There you go. Uh, but no, <laughs> it's good. Posh. Yeah, I thoroughly recommend it. Very oh, good. That's good. And uh, also joining us this week, obviously, it is the other awesome member of our team over in the US. It is, of course, the absolute legend that is Armando. Hey, guys. It's actually a beautiful day here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And as you all know, I usually have a nice studio set up behind me. Today, I'm using a virtual background because our guest is going to beat me because his is not a virtual background. (laughs) It's actually a real background. So I had to step up my game today. Um, Not a lot going on with me. So I'm actually going to go right ahead and uh, and tell you about who that, uh, that guest is. 
before you talk about the chat room, Carlos. You've seen him on episodes 320, 321, 322, uh, telling us about some harrowing, and not some harrowing, some lovely flying experiences. Today we, ha- we have with us Bob Mills, sport class president from the Reno Air Races. Hey, Bob. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good, good, good to see you, Bob. How, how are things over your side of the uh, the world? Uh, they're uh, they're fantastic. Uh, we've actually oh, relocated that. from oh. <laughs> uh, from Reno, Nevada, to just outside Georgetown, Texas, which is just north of Austin, and um, was able to uh, convince my wife to have our family move in with our airplanes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. yeah good. So that, that's a struggle I'd love to have yeah, as well. Yeah, I know. So that's actually his garage. Most people are like, "Oh man, do I take the uh, do I take the C Max or do I take the Mondeo out?" <laughs> Bob, when he commutes to work, he's like, oh man, do I take the RV or the Stearman?" I mean, you know, for first world problems and all that, I suppose. <laughs> I have to say, Bob, that that Stearman in the back guy looks really good. Thank you. But, it's been been fun. It was uh, it was an interesting. Uh, process of uh, buying the airplane in West Virginia, um, like we talked about a little bit last time, uh, uh, bringing it across the country to Reno, and then a few months later, making the decision to move to Texas, so bringing it back again. Um, not without uh, 80-year-old airplane uh, mechanical issues that uh, had to be solved on the road, but we got it here, and it's flying great, and um, it's a great background for uh, Sport 49, I think, as well, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully we'll get some more info on that uh, on that story later on in the show. But we are going to say a big hello to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. A uh, big hello to all our usual family members in there. We've got Captain Cruz, uh, Stephen H., Graham Haley, uh, James Stringer, and we've got uh, Andrew van der Sark. Hello to you, Andrew. Uh, Jenny in Rome. Hello to you, Jennifer. Hope you're well. Uh, we've got our main man, Micah obviously wielding the blue spanner of death, so you better all be on your best behaviour. We have got Alan Loveday. Hello to you, Alan. Masha is also in there. Hello to you, Myla, as well. Myla's in the chat room as well. Hello to you. Tony S. uh, Just growing Lane Street. Hello to you, Lane. Hope you're well. Rakon. Hello to you, Rakon. Richard Adams. Uh, Neil Braden. Hello to you, Neil. Hope all's well with you. James Russell. Hello to you, James. We've got uh, Pilot Pitman there as well, or AKA Plane Safety Podcast. And who else we got? We've got a new name, Colleen Keller. Hello, Colleen. Nice to see you. Hello. Hope you're well. Hope you're well, Colleen. And uh, enjoying the show. Colleen. Colleen? Oh, we'll probably get put right. (laughs) That's why we have a chat room, Matt. That's why we have a chat room. (laughs) And uh, Jacob Darlington Brown. Hello to you as well. So don't forget, if you are listening to this show as an audio version and want to join in uh, the the, chaos or fun, it's a kind of mixture of both. A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, if you look for us on YouTube, that's all the W's dot. Uh, youtube.com forward slash plain talking uk and also on the page on our page on youtube don't forget to subscribe to the show and also hit that bell icon which is right next to it to be notified when matt hits that go live button and then recording a live episode and you can join us all in the chat room so armando we're going to hand things over to you to kick the show off yeah thanks carlos so uh, in the two and a half years that I've been on the show, or uh, I've lost track of time because we, we bend this time-space continuum here, <laughs> but uh, you guys, everybody in the family knows that I'm very close to the Reno Air Race. This is something that's close to my heart, and I've talked about what a close family 
It is. It's, it is our September family when we go out there and we work uh, and we all compete for about, uh, I don't know, Bob, maybe a total of grand total of about an hour and a half. And then the other 14 days, everybody's just friends in the hangars and in the hotel and at the bars and, and whatnot. But uh, so we talked about this year, actually, when Bob was on the show last on episode uh, 322, we were still making the decision of whether or not to run the Reno air races because of the COVID pandemic. So like every other public event and air show this year, um, uh, RARA, the Reno Air Race Association, had to make a decision to not uh, run the races because of the the risk to not just the public, but our fantastic volunteers that are out there. They're mostly an, an, you know, a more experienced generation. They're retirees. And uh, and the races just couldn't happen without them. So I think I think that was a big part of uh, uh, not just attendance and ticket sales, but but our our volunteers were so important out there. Um, so that being said, we're going to run a little video. This was actually put out by the Reno Air Race Association, um, and then we're going to talk to Bob about how uh, we ended up there. So Matt, if you'd hit it. The Steel National Championship Air Races is, it's the longest lasting now and and really one of the few major air race events left. Air racing goes back to the early 1900s, back to uh, the Cleveland Air Races and a number of others. As long as uh, pilots have been flying, they've been racing airplanes too. You know, the legacy has been a legacy of innovation, of competition, and teamwork. It was the revival of unlimited racing in the United States, which had been suspended. And it was just delighted to bring it back here in Reno. The national championship air race is taking form in the early 1960s. Um, You know, we now have a 57-year history, 56 events at this point, uh, here in northern Nevada. And so we are now the only air race of our kind in the world. So from a legacy standpoint, It's a national treasure. It's been around for over half a century, and it's the only thing like it left in the world. The the people that race and the whole week that comes, it's like a family getting together once a year to come and do the thing they have a passion for, and that's racing each other. It's a place where people can come and race airplanes, uh, from experimental airplanes to the kind that we fly uh, daily, if we would, to uh, warbirds and to jets and to biplanes. It's just, a, it's just a fantastic place to do it. And even though they race each other, race for money, they're racing for trophies, there's a real brotherhood there of everybody getting along and enjoying what everybody else enjoys. And you can't do that anywhere else in the world. And the community support that we've had and the economic impact that it has for the community in return has been very significant over the years. And it's just our honor and pleasure to be part of this community. The economic impact overall to the Reno, Sparks, Tahoe community came in at between 90 and 100 million between the two years. So the economic impact is huge. We have roughly 110 to 120,000 in total attendance, and 70% or so of those people come from out of town. So when those people all come from out of town, they're bringing money into the city, providing money to our businesses. Um, there are some restaurants that we talk to. Half of their half of their income for the year comes from our race week. So it's just so important to this community from a from a economic impact standpoint. Just like the rest of the world, the 
the Steel National Championship Air Races has been through some really tough times in the past few years. 2020 has been challenging, difficult time. It, it was it was an amazingly difficult, incredibly difficult uh, decision to not conduct the air races this year. But it was the safest, best way to not only ensure the safety of the fans and the pilots and the racers, but also just to to keep the air races alive. Financially, times are tough, just like everywhere else in the world. So the, the, the Reno Air Race Association and the air races themselves are hurting. This year, we're, we're going to miss all our fans. We're going to miss the uh, camaraderie with the fans, with the other pilots. And we recognize that until we're able to hold a safe, healthy, secure event for our fans, for our pilots, for our crews, for our volunteers and for our staff, then we can't proceed. The amount that we really need is about 500,000. Um, you know, we, the income was down roughly a million by not having the some of the costs associated with holding the event, that number comes down, but it's about half a million that it's cost us through this COVID problem. Um, even three, you know, if we could raise 300,000, that would be that would be great, but truly the number of need is 500, 500,000, half a million. And it would be wonderful for pilots around the world, air race fans around the world, you know, if they see fit to donate or contribute somehow to the Air Race Association, it would ensure that this continues, that we don't lose this very, very special event and this, this unique way of preserving aviation and sharing aviation with the world. We've got to keep this one-of-a-kind event in this world going. If we stop, rare racing goes away, we'll never recoup it, and that will be a national tragedy. I ask if you're an Air Race fan, if you can, and donate whatever you feel financially able to donate. And if everybody does that, it might be five bucks, it might be 10, it might be 200, whatever the case may be, that's all gonna add up and it's gonna help us out. The easiest way to donate is to go to airrace.org and click the donate button and it'll walk you through the online donation process. It's very, very simple. If it's in your heart to, uh, to help the races continue and you're excited about doing that, we, we can't say thank you enough if you click on that donate button and, uh, and donate what's, what's in your heart to be able to do. That's a, a, a great introductory video. And Bob, I, you know, I, we asked you to be here live today because uh, I've gotten to see a little bit of the background of what a tough decision it was. And we're not going to focus on the negative. We're going to focus on, on 2021 and how we're going to do this uh, better next year and how we're going to come back with some strength. But um, can you give us a little bit of background how hard it was for the leadership team at, at RARA and the, and the different classes to, to make that decision to, to cancel the races? Absolutely. Um, I'd be happy to. Uh, the... The leadership at RARA, the Reno Air Association, was in contact with the class presidents and, uh, you know, its board of directors throughout the spring and early summer. And the agonizing decision to, um, to either delay, restructure, or cancel the races was, was debated, put back and forth. I mean, you know, with, with the, the, 
type of information flow that was coming out of the world based on COVID, and you know how confusing the whole thing has been, um, the, the, the association really wanted to do the right thing. Um, while the races have been uh, conducted every year since 1964, and other than just after September 11th, when they were canceled, they actually did some of the racing before September 11th, shut everything down. But the, um, uh, the races have run every year, uh, you know, no matter what. And so it was, it was very difficult to say, well, we don't, you know, we, they, they don't want to lose the consistency. They don't want to lose the touch with the fans, uh, the struggle of the last few years financially due to economics and, um, you know, the, the mishap that was uh, that occurred in 2011 kind of created another restructuring within RARA and, and things were really on a positive trend and then COVID really pulled the rug out. Um, and it was on the heels of a couple of tough financial years um, that RARA was working through to try to really turn things around. So it, it couldn't have been worse timing really. Uh, the The ultimate decision was made based on what is absolutely the right thing to do? I mean, there was a huge financial component of it because if you if you spend the money to host the races and conduct the races and there are no fans there because of concerns over COVID or it's just not the right thing to do to host an event like that, you know, the financial impact of that would be devastating. Um, the, the, the loss of touch with the fans in the September family, which, you know, that includes Rara, all the classes and all the fans, whether they're there in person or they're with us online or through live air show TV or whatever it might be, how they join. So the, that decision was painful, but in the end, absolutely the right thing to do. Um, it not only protected all those in the September family um, from the, the, the then and still somewhat unknown and scary specter of COVID. Um, it also uh, allows the, uh, the, the, the Reno Air Association and all the classes to regroup and point towards 2021 to come back stronger, better, faster than ever. And, and really that's where we're at right now. Um, so, so I think that explains how the decision was made and, and how we got to that point. Um, and I, I take it you want to kind of look towards the future now and where we are with our fundraising campaign and the Save the Races initiative and then moving into 2021. 20, Is that right? Yeah, that's it. Let's go for it. Okay. Um, the uh, leadership, Fred Telling, Tony Logateta, and, um, and Terry Matter, along with, you know, representing the board of directors of the Reno Air Association, reached out to all the class presidents to share with them and to initiate what they're now calling the Save the Racist campaign. Uh, it's, a, it's a donation campaign designed to try to help the races recover from this, you know, big downturn year or the big loss year created by COVID and other circumstances beyond that as well, uh, to try to get into 2021 with a much stronger financial package going into setting up and hosting the races again. And really, really, Fred and company want to try to make the 2021 races better than ever, uh, bring in more racers than ever, bring in, you know, a, a larger um, 
contingent of every class, if you will, um, including the unlimiteds. We're working hard to try to get more unlimiteds in. Um, and, um, you know, all the classes have really stepped to to try to just prepare for 2021 being a huge turnaround year. Um, the, um, the donation campaign is something that started with RARA. It's being proliferated by the classes. We're putting it out to all our membership and asking all of them to put it out to their Facebook followings, their, you know, their Twitter feeds, their Instagram groups, everything, every way possible that we can get the word out to the world, really. Um, not only pilots, but fans of, of air racing, auto racing, any other, you know, I mean, it's such an exciting event that we really want to get the word out to everybody that this thing's going to come back stronger, better than ever. Um, Tony mentioned in his section of the, of the uh, video that was just played that the best way to donate is through the Reno Air Racing Association website, airrace.org. And there's a link now out that it's uh, airrace.org forward slash save hyphen the hyphen races. Um, that's, you know, I'm sure that, that we'll be putting that out via, you know, your podcast, uh, via follow on through YouTube and things like that. But I was just talking to, to my partner in crime, James Stringer, who's our class social media director. And I know he's on right now. Hi, James. His airplane name's on the airplane right here uh, <laughs> on uh, Sport 49, which is also going to come back stronger, faster, better than ever this year. <laughs> Watch out, you bronze racers, maybe even some of you silver guys. Um, but um, the, um, what we're trying to do is organize the classes in support of RARA in a social media blitzkrieg, if you will, just to try to get the word out to the world. So the podcast today is, I, I just can't tell you guys, thank you enough for having us on. And to all those that are joining on the podcast, thank you for, you know, your enthusiasm, your support. If you feel like going to that button and hitting the donate button, uh, we're James and I were talking today. We're actually trying to get, or work with Rara to put something on the website that shows the progress. I think we are somewhere around 30% to their goal of, um, of $500,000 by the end of the year to, to create the springboard into 2021. That, um, that's actually pretty impressive for one week into the program. The, but I also said, you know, the first thing you see, you know, hey, here's the website, here's the donate button. Well, I'd like to know a little bit more about it before I hit donate. Well, the donate button actually brings you to that information. So we're trying to work with them to create another button that says, how's this, how's this program going? How's the pledge process going? Because as important as it is to, to reach people and give them the enthusiasm about racing and let them know uh, what we are trying to accomplish. It's also important that folks that are considering donating get some feedback as to what is the Reno Air Race Association and what are the classes going to do with this donation money? How are we going to make this turnaround? How are we going to make 2021 the best year ever in the national championship air races? It's, it's great for me to say that, but let's put a little meat on the bone and just tell them how are things going to turn around? What are we going to do? How is the spectacle going to be more exciting than it ever was in the past? So that's the kind of thing that we're working on right now. Yeah, and just to clarify too, that 
unlike the Farnborough Airshow or the Dubai Airshow or even Oshkosh, um, the Reno Air Races is very much a grassroots organization. So you have this overarching organization, the Reno Air Race Association, but each class is its own organization, its own entity, uh, very much funded by its members and its and its supporters. But there's not, um, I, there are corporate sponsors. I mean, Steel, uh, Steel Power Tools does a, a great job every single year of coming back and, uh, and sponsoring the races. But they're compared to some of those big, big aviation events, there's just not the same uh, level of corporate sponsorship. Uh, so this, it is very much a, a family. And, and like Bob said, it's, that includes the fans and even more so the city of Reno, right? The, the city of Reno is very important to, to hosting the races and, and all the restaurant workers, hotel workers that go along with that. So it, it, this is very much a, a grassroots uh, campaign. Um, isn't it, Bob? Yes, absolutely. It's like, as, you know, you bring up Reno and the surrounding community. It's a huge event for Reno in a town that has back-to-back huge events throughout the summer and the fall. I mean, it's a, it's a really exciting place to be. Um, and, you know, af- after some huge events downtown, including hot August nights and the, the internationally renowned rib cook-off and a balloon festival. We roll right into the Reno air races. And I mean, you could plan a summer vacation around Reno with all the things that are going on there. Um, so, so, so let that be a bug in everyone's ear for that too. It's, it's a hot spot and Tahoe's right next door too. So, I mean, it's a, it's really a vacation paradise with, the fastest motorsport <laughs> in the world tied into it, you know, so you can ski in the winter and watch air races in the summer or in the fall. So, um, but that, that grassroots aspect of it is um, it's, it's really a touchstone for the event too. There, you know, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area and when I started flying as a teenager I became aware of the Reno Air Races because all of the pilots knew about it. And it was a pilgrimage every September to go to Reno to watch the air races. And, and that wasn't just a California thing. It was, it was all over the West to include people that came from Florida and the East Coast, racers that came from Texas. It was, it, 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 I don't want to call it a cult following because it was bigger than that. It was kind of like you see at Oshkosh, you know, you have Oshkosh, you have Sun and Fun, as you talked about, you talked about Duxford, you talked about Farnborough. These are our Mecca level events, if you will, where people make a pilgrimage every year. Remember the, uh, the guy at Oshkosh that was the one man band and yeah. all of those instruments. And, and he was an institution there, but he had all those pins and all those stickers. I mean, you know, from being there every year and, and people walked around and they also had, they have their, they have their vests with Oshkosh, you know, 19, 18, 17, 16, 15, 14, right? You know, <laughs> they, uh, the guys that go to the uh, Galesburg Stearman flying every year, they get their stickers and their pins every year and they have that. And the Reno air races were the same way. There's a pin for every year and it's a, you know, it's a collector's item that, people that have been there since 1964. And there are some that have been every year since 1964. They have that collection. And and that, that level of family um, dedication and loyalty to the races is really 
one of the main strengths of the air races. And, and that's the part that, you know, something like COVID-19 pandemic starts separating us. You know, we've all talked about how, you know, we're, we're together apart because of the COVID-19 right now. And we've tried to keep that alive through the classes and through the Reno Air Association, through outreach, but that we need to keep that going. We need to keep that feeling alive. You know, I mean, our, we have class updates from time to time where I reach out to sport class and try to tell people what's going on, or at least, you know, my view of what's going on. And I think all of us are kind of hungry for, for input and feedback like that. And so that's what we're trying to work with the other classes to generate uh, kind of that social media blitz. Again, I said it again, is, you know, to, to tell people, hey, we're still alive. We're still well. We'll st we're still growing. We're coming back. Um, the races are not going to die. Um, the races are hurting financially right now. There's no doubt about that. And that's this, this outreach that RARA is generating through the Save the Races campaign. And, and again, I, I circle back to, you know, how do you generate that excitement? It's, it's a great idea to give people an opportunity and a method to pledge their, their donation and pledge their, um, you know, their, their continued fanship. Uh, allegiance isn't the word I want to say, but it's <laughs> along those lines, right? Their, their commitment as a September family member. But we, I think we need to do more. I think we need to have, you know, more video, more photos, more, more things available like this podcast you know, like an interactive website, perhaps, like an out, you know, something that's less passive than just come to our website. Let's get active with this. Let's reach out. Let's do things that are exciting. Let's, let's start. I mean, I, I told James today, I said, let's start putting chum in the water to see if we can create a feeding frenzy. You know, I mean, on one side, you have pilots that have a ton, I mean, terabytes. And what's the next thing beyond terabytes? I don't know, but I know we've got that much data and photo and video content and lord knows pilots are a shy group of guys especially race pilots <laughs> right i mean none of us want to see ourselves on the video none of us want to see ourselves on youtube oh wait yeah 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 <laughs> so, so the content is there let's create a method to get that out to the fans who are just hungry for it i know they are yeah it's, Again, reach out to them, give them some fun, give them some, 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 something to touch, something to see, something to feel, something to hear. You know how it sounds like, right? Um, and then and say, this is coming back. Don't let it die. That's what the Save the Races um, uh, program or effort is all about. Don't let this die so that you can come back and see this and feel it and smell it and hear it and touch it again, make it so that it's there for your kids. I said that in that video that was shown there. You can't let this thing go away. I mean, it's been there since, you know, our parents and grandparents were fans, you know, you know, the beginning of the Reno air races with famous names that are now in black and white videos of P 51s. And then later, you know, pictures of lefty Gardner zorching around the, uh, pylons in a p38 lightning i mean you know we can't go anywhere and see things like that right it That's only happens at reno it's only there so we can't let it die so i, I totally know. agree with that we you're, you're, 
you're getting me spooled up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's the passion that we need. And although here at the podcast, we're very much partial to the sport class, I suppose at some point, maybe we will let some of those T6 and jet guys get on the show also and, uh, and, right. and talk about, you know, share their videos too. Fred, Fred Telling, T6s, Sherm Smoot, um, Unlimited. Um, oh, yeah, Bi- biplanes, Formula Ones, yeah. Phil in the, uh, in the formula class. This is the bar. We're setting the bar for you guys. Get out here. Get on the podcast. Get on your social media. Let's get some photos and video out there. <laughs> I like it. Well, there's, a, there's a calls in the chat room for James Stringer to, to set up a, a U.K., based reno air race demonstration or maybe even a real race one day but uh bob thanks for coming on the show we'll get all of the social media links out we'll uh share that with rara and the sport class family and um we'll uh we'll we'll get us to the to the goal won't we absolutely hey for all you guys in the podcast team armando all the, all the gents Thank you so much for letting us be a part of your show and, and getting the word out there a bit. You guys do an awesome job. I love watching all the stuff you put out there. So, and, and uh, I can't wait. Well, that's right. The December Christmas stuff is a surprise, so I won't spill that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Bob. Cheers, Bob. Here, guys. Cheers. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. That was great. Okay. We're going to need to bash straight on, guys. Uh, as you probably saw, I've been popping up the uh, – details uh, on the screen there so if uh, you would like to participate uh, and sort of join in the fun as he said it's www.airrace.org slash save dash the dash races so there you are uh, very good. we'll make sure all those details are in the show notes if you are listening to the audio version of the show but uh, wow he's always so such good value so isn't good, he? You just, it's great you, armando just has to ask one question and that's it uh, that the interview is done it's marvelous isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> great thank you very much bob that was Cheers, amazing bob. okay carlos so we are going to kick off then with some commercial news so if all the team's ready Deathly silence. So I'll assume yes. Ready to go. Uh, let's we'll go. Assume you're ready. <laughs> so, kicking off this week's first commercial news story, and uh, this one comes from multiple. Uh, editions of uh, various news feeds online, including uh, CNN, Bloomberg, Reuters, Flight Global, Aerotime.aero, BBC and American Airlines. And it's good news if you love the Max, because the Federal Aviation Administration has on Wednesday issued an order that brings to a conclusion the longest grounding of a jetliner in US history. The 737 MAX was grounded in March 2019 after two fatal crashes killed 346 people. The 20-month process of fixing and approving the aircraft to fly again has cost Boeing over 20, mil, uh, 20 billion, I should say, uh, dollars, according to the company. Ouch. The FAA order is uh, only the first step that only covers flights within the U.S. domestic market operated by U.S. registered carriers. Flights to or within other countries will need approval of their nation's aviation authorities before MAX flights will resume there. 
It's important to note that before any planes can be flown with passengers again, the necessary changes that uh, uh, must be installed and the FAA must inspect the planes individually. Pilots uh, must also go through additional training. Canadian and Brazilian authorities have both announced that they are, were not ready uh, yet to make a decision on the jet, although, like the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, or EASA, it has been strongly suggested by officials that they are close to making a similar decision. Australia's Civil Aviation Safety Authority said that EASA's position on the matter would be taken into account before the grounding will be lifted in Australia. And a spokesperson for the UK Civil Aviation Authority said EASA uh, was in charge of recertification for EU member states as well as the UK. However, China, the first country to go to ground uh, the jet and currently the main driver of growth in the industry, hasn't given any clear timetable for the MAX's return. Customer confidence in the aircraft will be a major hurdle for Boeing and the operators. American Airlines has confirmed that it's planning to start operations, operating the aircraft uh, in December on the 29th um, on services between Miami, New York, and with a note from the CEO and senior leadership at the airline that said, if a customer prefers not to fly on the aircraft, uh, we will provide flexibility to ensure they can easily be re-accommodated. Lastly, while the order for the grounding or ungrounding has been given by the FAA in the US, it only applies to variants which are already certified at the time of the grounding. The MAX-7, the MAX-8, and the high-density MAX-200 variant that Ryanair has ordered are still awaiting final certification for commercial operations. Now, I have to say, after everything that's gone on with the, with the airlines and the, um, the FAA and obviously Boeing... You know, I think Matt said this before, haven't you, Matt? That mm. um, you know, when this aircraft is eventually He's given the, the yeah, yeah. ticket of approval, I, I you know, I'm I'm not going to be shying away if it's a uh, Max. No, absolutely. Um, what about what about you, Nev? I mean, how how do you feel about the the Max? Would you, would you be willing to to sort of fly on it without you know sort of batting oh, an eyelid? Yeah, ab- absolutely. No, I've got no problem at all. That it will be one of the safest aircraft. Yeah. Flying, I would imagine, because the amount of work that's gone in, and as we all said mm. previously, you know, Boeing can't afford to have uh, anything go wrong with this. So that's why everybody's taken their time. Uh, and I'm pleased to see that, um, you know, different uh, authorities around the world are choosing to uh, certify it under, under their regulations as, as well, separately. So that, that's a good thing. But yeah. uh, no, I think, uh, uh, I think it'll be good. Um, but uh, yeah, the cost of it yeah. has been absolutely it's been frightening let alone the the lives lost of course that's the Indeed. main thing. well i mean you can't put a price on that can you at the end of the day uh, i mean i think, I so, think... so armando how do you feel about um something like, obviously because you've you've got a lot of flying experience more than than we'll ever have i mean as a as a pilot how do you feel about the max now uh same as you guys i i've said it from the very beginning i once this aircraft is certified it will be good to go. I have no problems getting on it whatsoever. And I've um, seen some of the social media feeds from Southwest Airlines, American Airlines that they're, uh, you know, we've always kind of said that most people have no idea if they're getting on a 737-200 mm. or or a 777 for that matter uh, most of the time. But um, they are actually offering... Now I know you're talking about me there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's one airplane that you know, Matt, and that's a 75. Uh, but uh, but no, the, the, you know the, these airlines are already offering uh, f- 
pre-flight changes on top of the COVID flight changes um, if, if an individual yeah. has concerns about the MAX. But uh, like I said, most people won't know the difference and, and, uh, and I, I completely trust uh, the regulatory authorities as well as the airlines. No, nobody can afford to lose no. a, another airplane, so they, they wouldn't do it if it wasn't safe. No, fair point. Okay, we're going to move on to the next story then. And this is... Um, well, Stephen Grant, I've been cracking the fosters open for this one. Right, okay. Anyway, uh, so uh, basically the headline is uh, Qantas Centenary Celebrations. Uh, a couple of sources here, mainly from simpleflying.com. Uh, thanks to Ray Davis, who sent us this story in. And uh, Qantas took to the skies earlier on Monday evening for a centenary flight over Sydney. It was a little more, a little more low-key than many were hoping however it culminated in the harbour bridge being lit up as a larger than life birthday cake complete with illuminated candles that were blown out by the plane as it did a low level overfly at 1500 feet the flight uh, uh, Quebec here we go Quebec Foxtrot no have I got that right yes QF100. QF100. I could have done that, couldn't I? That would have been a lot easier. Uh, (laughs) Took off from Sydney Airport at twilight on Monday evening. Uh, Victor Hotel... Uh, dash Zulu November Juliet Julien Juliet oh I don't know anyway operated the flight a Qantas Boeing 787-9 that's best known for its distinctive centenary livery uh, on board were 200 passengers including 100 Qantas employees uh, the flight which took 100 minutes flew down to Shell Harbour before wandering back up the coast over Sydney it performed several loops before flying down the uh, main harbour as it did thousands of LEDs and 38 searchlights lit up the full expanse of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Uh, uh, 65-metre-high birthday candles were projected onto the southern and northern pylons, creating a big birthday cake. Qantas CEO Alan Joyce called yesterday's centenary a small, low-cost event. Uh, He noted a big bash would have been unacceptable in the current environment, especially after thousands of employees have lost their jobs. Uh, And while there's no there's nothing wrong with a flyover and a bridge lit up like a birthday cake it wasn't exactly the year-long party the airline had previously been cooking up originally this year's schedule was a 12-month long tour around australia a kind of mobile museum showcasing showcasing Qantas from the past century as well as a whole host of announcements about new routes aircraft and project sunrise instead 6,000 people have lost their jobs at Qantas in its centenary year alan joyce said Qantas had survived drought wars and depression but 2020 was the worst year by far for australians there's nothing quite like seeing the flying kangaroo at the airport waiting to take you home we hope to be doing a lot more of that in the months and years ahead um i mean sort of quite wise words i think really there from the the ceo i mean you couldn't be doing what you you originally had planned obviously just because of you know just because of what was going on Yes, absolutely right. And uh, no, I think it's, um, well, you know, it's changed everything, hasn't it? <laughs> of course, this whole yeah. pandemic and uh, it, any 
other normal sort of ways of engagement have been changed, haven't they? So yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's just not really any. You know, I don't think there's any appetite for for these things at the moment, is there? Just literally because, as you say, of of what's going on. I mean, it's just uh, it would have been sort of inappropriate, really, for them to do what they had in mind, wouldn't it? Just yeah. because, uh, you know, as you say, I mean, and, and I think that's, I, I, I like the fact that they've taken the time to acknowledge the fact that so many people have lost their jobs uh, in their centenary year, which is definitely not what they would have had in mind, obviously. Anyway. Great, great video as well. Yeah, that's absolutely. Great, I mean, yeah, just yeah. a little bit of a taste there. So thank you to Channel 7 News for that. Uh, what we need to do now is uh, move on, I think. And Nev, Nev, that's you're, uh, yes. Nev's taking some uh, some tests. Is he? Oh. I am. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> there we are. <laughs> you, can get, you can get some tablets for that. <laughs> well, let's see how we go. Uh, and uh, this is on the nationalnews.com website, and it says that British Airways and American Airlines are partnering to offer coronavirus tests to passengers flying across the Atlantic uh, in a bid to prove that COVID nineteen testing is effective enough to remove quarantine policies for travellers, the airlines will offer free tests to passengers on selected US to London Heathrow flights. Uh, trials begin on the 25th of November, uh, which is next Wednesday, for eligible passengers flying American Airlines from Dallas-Fort Worth and British Airways travellers departing Los Angeles or New York's JFK for London Heathrow. Uh, so current UK travel restrictions mean that unless arriving from a destination on the country's air travel corridor list, uh, international travellers need to self-isolate for 14 days, even if they've had a negative COVID-19 test. Travellers booked to travel on participating flights in the trial will be contacted by the airlines before their departure date. Those who opt in will take an at-home PCR test 72 hours before departing the US under the supervision of medical professionals uh, via a virtual visit. After landing in London, travellers will take a second lab test provided by Collinson with medical professions, professionals taking a nasal sample from passengers. After the test is completed, a test kit for a third and final test will be provided to passengers. This is conducted three days later via an at-home saliva sample. The three-test approach aims to demonstrate each traveller's negative status for COVID-19 throughout their journey. The final test, designed to confirm the negative results of the first two tests, is included as a way for the airlines to show that one or two tests would be enough to allow travel to restart without quarantine periods. A task force made up of One World Airline Alliance representatives and independent medical experts is overseeing the trial and results will be shared with governments in the US and the UK. BA and American Airlines have confirmed that the tests being used as part of the trial will not impact the UK's National Health Service testing capability. Well, that's great news, isn't it? I think it's a very... Uh, we've been waiting for this sort of thing for some time now, and I think once they've trialled it on those sorts of routes um, <clears throat> and they get some good results from it, let's hope that we can start to see more transatlantic Atlantic traffic going on and to uh, other parts of the world as well, obviously. Well, and it's happening in other parts of the world as, as well, isn't it? I mean, I know, for example, uh, Lisa and Lee, uh, friends of the show, as, as you guys all know, they're going to uh, Lanzarote, as they always do. They're planning to go at Christmas. They've 
both of their attempts this year to go have been cancelled, obviously because of what's been going on. And this time round, they've actually got to do the 72-hour test uh, before they go. And I, I do think that is the... I, I don't know whether it is... I, I don't know who the peace of mind is for particularly, but uh, uh, perhaps it's for the, the arriving country or whatever. But it's... Uh, I think it's definitely, you know, about time something like this was very much mandatory across the board. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think uh, we'll, as long as this all goes well, I think we should see uh, uh, more being uh, rolled out, definitely. Indeed, absolutely. Uh, Stephen H is saying something in the chat room, apparently, and uh, they're saying basically, or he's saying, sorry, that uh, what is the incentive to participate in the trial? If you happened to get a positive test, your trip would be cancelled. Uh, you'll be in quarantine, uh, selfish perhaps, but ignorance sometimes is bliss. Um, and uh, you've got, got a point there, actually, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, you know, because if you do suddenly test positive, does that mean you can't fly? Because... You know, you, it's uh, yes, those are the rules. Yeah, yeah, the answer to that. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting point by Stephen. Actually, I mean, you know, are, are you likely to volunteer? But in in case your your holiday comes to an end all of a sudden, because you certainly aren't going to get your money back, are you? <laughs> Not when you're at the airport. It do. No. <laughs> um, uh, you may. You you may. We have we have the COVID uh, considerations for flight changes go all the way right up to. I, just a, a few hours before departure oh, really? for us. I've already canceled flights and they've given me flight credits um, with no questions asked. I literally just go onto the app and say, hey, just cancel this flight. And it's uh, it gives me a flight credit within an hour. Really? Gosh, that is very At least that's you know, here in the U.S. Yeah, indeed. And last point on this before we move on is uh, Micah is saying that the issue is not the, the flying. The issue is getting to and from your seat on the aircraft. Testing won't help. Uh, you can pick it up before you before or after your flight, which I suppose is a good point. But uh, yes, there we are. As I say, we, we, we can go on and on about this, I suppose, uh, forever and ever. But, as you know, I think we're all in agreement here. Something like this needs to come in place just so that we can start traveling again. I think that's that's really the issue for me personally anyway. Mm. Armando, you've got the next one about uh, a very interesting airline. That yeah, stay tuned till <laughs> the end of the story. So, a brand new budget airline based in Iceland looks to be filling the shoes of Wow Air, which went bankrupt in 2019. The branding of the new airline is called Mom Air. It uses the <laughs> inverted logo of Wow Air. Like Wow, Mom will be a typical low-cost airline operating transatlantic flights with all services on board being optional extras. We know that business model. But Mom Air has gone a step further and said that it will charge for toilet paper, hand soap, powering up electronic <laughs> devices, so all your APG shirts need to go out the window, oh, nice. and life vests under the seats. Uh, the airline's stated mission is to improve gender equality in the aviation industry. Mama emphasizes equality with a special emphasis on equalizing the role of the sexes in managerial and influential positions, according to its website. Mom plans to take part in projects that introduce girls uh, to role models and open their eyes to future possibilities, including flight attendants and executives. It is worth noting that WOW Air assets have previously been purchased and uh, plans for WOW Air 2.0 were in place, albeit as a U.S. cargo operator. Uh, Paul August Olofsson, a lawyer protecting the, ads, the uh, interests of Michelle Ballerin and the company in the U.S. Aerospace Associates, which owns Wow Air Intellectual Property, subsequently told reporters this is clearly an unauthorized use, use of the trademark logo. Uh, 
Plane Safety Podcast. Who is that? Pitt? Never heard of him. Nah. Never heard of him. Nah. Is this a joke? He asks. <laughs> yes, it is. So after vehemently denying it, Mom Air has now confirmed that the airline was in fact artwork for Iceland University of the Arts. Oh, it said nice. people from around the globe have interacted with the piece in some way, shape, or form with over 30 global news articles, radio interviews, and more global phenomenon. Mom Air reached millions and literally turned their reality upside down. Uh, the person that created this artwork created the brand website marketing material during preparations for his final project, which took about two to three weeks after launching the website and sending out press releases. The artwork gained a life of its own <laughs> every six to eight hours. I would change the errors people would encounter on the website and keep them busy and involved. At one point I had even been offered a fleet of airplanes, service and cabin crews, slots at airports and marketing assistance oh, wow. from a global <laughs> enterprise. <laughs> well, that's almost unbelievable, isn't it? Right. Okay. Now, it look, I've got, I've got questions. Okay, I've got lots of questions here, and uh, the what I so we're, we're talking about airlines and stuff. We're talking about the low cost model and all, all that kind of thing. Now, I'm going to start with you, Nev. Uh, I, I want to know what your core values and ideas for the perfect airline for you would be. What what would be your perfect airline? Oh well, probably if every seat was called one A, that would be a good starting point. Right. Uh, <laughs> probably not the answer you're looking for. No, um, indeed. Uh, while I'm going round the host, by the way, guys, a uh, chat room. I want you to to get your uh, details in there as well, please. Do let us know what you think would be the core values and perfect idea for your your airline, the airline that you would you know that would fit your bill perfectly. So, uh, anything else you'd like to add to that, Armand? Uh, to uh, your name's Nev, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's it. Well, I think, and yeah, obviously, uh, excellent food and wine uh, as right. well. I don't really care what it looks like on the outside, okay. to be honest. Well, no, that's true. You don't care that it would be pink and, and no. garish on the outside. Uh, now, uh, Carlos, I feel like I'm asking you this question. I have a feeling that yours would be more about, um, I don't know, if it was a TriStar L1011, you'd be happy no matter what. <laughs> No, like we said in our in our production meeting yesterday, that the airline that I would have would have unhindered access for for any aviation geek to go onto the flight deck oh. during the flight. What? During flight, okay. during flight, You're sort of yeah. like go back to sort of pre nine eleven type days. And, and stuff. I'd also one of the things that Gemma's always said to me as well in the past is is what she'd have on her aircraft. She would have a uh, Studio fifty four style seventies. Uh, nightclub right uh, on on the on the rear of the aircraft with okay. all the you know the glitter balls and lights and everything she would she would love that so she's she's really going to love your kitchen disco on uh, tomorrow night then, isn't <laughs> yeah. she absolutely because of the back shameless of plug yeah, um, but, yeah <laughs> good, that, yeah. that would that would be my ideal but i think for the geeks i think we would call it i don't know sort of like yeah have geek airways right okay all right now, now i'm assuming i'm under i'm making terrible assumptions here i assume yours would be more about the aircraft uh that you were choosing to be to be flown around in rather than the the other bits and pieces well sorry and i apologize for the background noise it was actually a embraer 145 starting its apu oh, outside dear. my window how rude um <laughs> no i think mine you know i thought about this and i think mine would be a throwback to the golden age of aviation so i would want really smartly dressed cabin crew and pilots. And one of the coolest things uh, that I've ever seen was this Ford tri-motor that uh, Delta Air Service used to use. And it was just this uh, great craftsmanship on the airplane, just 
Uh, it had, I think it even had gas lamps on the sides, which sounds like a terrible idea in aviation. <laughs> but I, wow, but yes. I, so it would be something really, really fancy like that, like something that we see in in those those old pictures from the from the 30s and the 40s. But I would do it in a in a method that would be looking towards the future. So maybe you could have something like that on the interior and the experience, but the airplane may be, um, you know, like a carbon neutral, maybe an electric airplane. So we've, we've been talking about uh, Faraday and their hybrid model. And, you know, I, I just think that the, the perfect airplane for this would be a, a DHC two, you know, or something like that, um, an electric version of that. Wow. Okay. All right then. So we, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whiz through the chat room because we've got some great uh, comments here. Uh, so uh, Jonathan Warner, uh, he says a rare steak <laughs> dinner and a bottle of red. I think that's uh, clearly the way forward. Uh, Andrew van der Sarg basically says it's got to contain the words British and Airways. I suspect he's from the same club as Nev on, mm. on that one, perhaps. I don't know how you feel about that, Nev. <laughs> Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Right. Okay. Good. Lovely. Um, and uh, Tony's got a great point here. I'm, I'm with Tony on this one. Not, not uh, just not being treated like cattle would be a great start. Yeah, I, I can see where they're going with this. Uh, some guy by the name of Pilot Pip is saying that no kids under 15 airways sounds great to him. Um, uh, now, John, Jonathan again came back with how about Hooter Airlines? Um, now, apparently that was actually a thing back in the 90s, from what I understand. Um, to 2003 to 2006, I'm being told in my ear. Uh, Stephen H uh, was saying, I was thinking that uh, adults only, people with families, have the option to fly with other companies. It's all about their personal I love choice. Steve, I love Stephen H's comment: the people being fined if they clap on landing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never really understood that. It's like, it's like, is it just because there's, there's some? I mean, you know, if it's Ryanair and they're surprised they've landed, I guess there is that. Uh, but it <laughs> seems a bit harsh. Uh, now, actually, I think I don't know how you, you, you uh, av, proper av geeks are going to feel about this, but Richard Adams has suggested a glass floor. Now, how do, how do? I mean, I mean, uh, I suppose it depend on where you were actually sitting, because at the end of the day, uh, underneath your feet would essentially be the luggage. Uh, so that may be less interesting. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, so I suppose if you could have it where the, the glass floor was the, you know, like the, the, the bot, you know, the bottom, uh, you know, the, Honestly, the outside. Uh, oh dear, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, so uh, Rakon is saying Dad Airline would take care of the special needs of dads without travelling with a family, which is, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that information. Uh, let's go back to what else have we, anything else in the, in the chat room that's, that's grabbing your No, your I think we'll, we'll, we'll brush over Lane's ones. Oh, will we? Okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you mean. Uh, but uh, no, great there. I mean, there's some great ideas. I think what we've got there is... Um, uh... <laughs> What, so you would see the cargo compartments. Yes, all right, Nick. That's that's where I was going with that, honestly. You can always rely on, on Captain Nick Anderson to bring us back to Earth, can't you? Never mind. Anyway, well done, chat room. That was a great little discussion there. And uh, we'll move on to the next story, Carlos. And this one comes to us from mainlymiles.com. And uh, this one is especially for the likes of Mr bounds because he loves his uh, quality <laughs> and uh, this is uh, singapore a380 new first class to be installed on the a380 so in some rare positive news in this in this week's uh, aviation news the airline has confirmed 
to uh, many mainly miles that 12 of its future a380 fleet will boast the new 2017 cabin products Ooh. with the fourth refit currently underway and three more in the pipeline that means the airline will uh, sorry will ultimately boast a, a consistent product offering on its super jumbos though it may mean we all have to see the last of the older suites business class products which now look unlikely to re-enter service this is likely because the seat products themselves, which make up over half the cost of each retrofit, had already been ordered and potentially reached a late stage of manufacturing, meaning uh, Singapore had to pay for them anyway. It will mean uh, that Singapore, coming good on its original promise to refit all of its A380s with new seats, a program originally proposed for completion on 14 older aircraft by the end of 2020. As of the 13th of November this year, Singapore has uh, eight A380s that have been installed with the new cabin products, says a uh, Singapore Airlines spokesperson. Uh, The refits seem to take around eight months. Wow. So it could be into 2021 before we see nine Victor Sierra Kilo Mike, which is currently undergoing its refit uh, to take its post-maintenance test flight in the new configuration. As highlighted earlier this week, Singapore Airlines has removed suites and first-class cabin availability for revenue and award booking until the 31st of October 2021, making it unlikely we will see the A380 return into service over the next year or so. The biggest selling point of the newly configured A380s is the latest suites cabin, relocated to the forward upper deck with a capacity of just six, three either side of the central aisle. Uh, two of the suite pairs, 1A, Nev, 2A, 1F and 2F can combine to form a double suite if you are travelling with someone else. Although Singapore Airlines stopped short of installing showers in their new A380 fit, there are two large washrooms at the front of the cabin, one of which is so big it has its own separate vanity area. So this story comes with some fun facts. And uh, these are, um, are all about the actual price of said seats and suites. So to give you an idea, just a quick idea of how much these seats cost each. This is per seat. So an economy seat uh, is going to set you back around about $5,000 to purchase. At premium economy, at 15000 uh, Business uh, class, anywhere between 150000 and 300000 US dollars. And for those all-important suites, the big posh first-class suites, you're talking in around the range but between half a million to a million dollars per suite, which is fairly expensive. And that's Mm. the cost to the airlines, yeah. Yeah, that's expensive for one of those. It's definitely (laughs) one of those ones that you're not going to see... On uh, on eBay for sale, second hand. Anyway. Right? No, no. I, I I suspect not. I mean, looking at those photos while you were talking, Carlos. It does. I mean, nice. it does look beyond stunning, doesn't it? I mean, mm. it just looks such a, like such an amazing thing. Sadly, something I will never be able to afford. But well, actually, uh, yeah. if anyone's watching from Singapore and they want some uh, some test uh, people to go and test out these suites, do drop us a line. Podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. <laughs> Ever hopeful, yes. Mm. Never mind. Yeah, do you know what? I'd even consider flying in COVID times. Uh, that, that's how much I'd be willing to to try mm. it. Yes. Anyway, there we go. <laughs> Nev, you have got the next story, which is um... carry on, Nev. 
Yeah, this we, we try to avoid vulgarity on this show, as, as <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, and the, the notes that I'm reading here come with so many warnings uh, about uh, how we should be saying all this. So uh, I will I'll give it a go. It's on the airlive.net uh, website. Um, headline <laughs> says that two pilots are under investigation for allegedly altering their flight path to draw something rude in the sky. <laughs> the phallic-like turns oh, were apparently my. a bizarre <laughs> act of solidarity with the Russian football team's captain. The unnamed crew of the Russian uh, Paul Beda airline are reported to have flown the plane so that it drew male genitalia to back their country's team captain. Uh, Artem Zuba. Zuba uh, was uh, suspended after a lewd and unconfirmed video of the athlete alone was leaked to social media. This was probably in the way in which Pobeda uh, Pro captains expressed their support to Russian team captain Artem Zuba and showed their uh, attitude to him being bullied, said a spokesman for the airline. Well, the Boeing 737-800 uh, performing flight Delta Papa 407 en route, for, en route from uh, Moscow to Yekaterinburg on November the 11th. It was later confirmed that the Federal Air Transport Agency is investigating the phallic protest <laughs> over the city of Neftskomesk. Uh, Kamsk, I think that says. Um, reports suggest the crew requested permission for air manoeuvres due to a need to check radio navigation equipment. <clears throat> wow. It is known that the scheduled flight with budget airline Pobeda, uh, part of the national flag carrier Aeroflot, landed 20 minutes late. Uh, Oleg uh, Pantaleev, uh, executive director of Aviaport Agency, told the, B the RBC News that a check was being made on whether the crew had received permission for unusual manoeuvres around the area, and if so, whether the turns in the sky threatened safety. The probe will also check whether the crew broke the boundaries of ethical behaviour. Separately, the FSB Security Service is investigating whether the 32-year-old Zenit St. Petersburg player was blackmailed for $5 million dollars over the compromising video, which was allegedly hacked from his mobile phone. Um, I'm not even going to look at the chat room. No, uh, okay. Laughter. <laughs> but when we were preparing the show a couple of nights ago, there was a lot of, a lot of wheezing and, and general hilarity. Over I know. Day. Sometimes it's a shame we don't record our production meetings, it's you know, because well. it, it's, uh, I mean, I think none of us will be allowed ever allowed on the air ever again. Now, I do have uh, some images of the uh, flight plan I, I i don't know should should we show them how do we feel about this it's just, just let everyone know this is an actual image of the flight plan it's, it's the actual flight plan okay is, here we go is, um, lovely yeah. here we are then i'll just pop it up there very briefly and uh, there we were it's gone again uh lovely uh <laughs> We we won't we won't gloss over that. Um, uh, yes, there we are, uh, and uh, there we are. A, a picture of an aeroplane. There we are, just to sort of ah, put better. things back to back to uh, to how yes. things should be. There we are. Well, uh, well, you know, that was um, you did very well there, Nev. I'm 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 slightly proud of you. I'm surprised. <laughs> Richard Adams is is just wondering in the chat room whether they use foreflight to plan that or something. I suspect. But should we say yes? Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to do or say. Uh, right. Yes, okay. 
Uh, yes, there's uh, apparently to, uh, so we're having some people who are joining us from Airshow World. Stu has just finished his stream there. So hello, guys. Welcome to hello. the show. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. And uh, OK, uh, so you've joined us just at the end of the commercial. Uh, <laughs> is that correct? <laughs> I have got that right, haven't I? Yeah, there we go. Somebody talk to me, please. Yeah, so we're going to move on <laughs> with the next part of the show. And we're going to hand things over to Nev to introduce this special segment coming up. Yes, I'm looking forward to this. Again, I must say, well, as you'll have uh, hopefully seen on last week's show, Faraday at Duxford are working on manufacturing a very unique regional aircraft, which will be ready for flying in a prototype form, hopefully in 2024. It certainly sparked a lot of interest from our viewers and listeners on last week's show, especially in the chat room, I must say. Uh, in the second part of this fascinating interview with CEO Neil Cluffley, Carlos and Neil discuss what kind of propulsion the Bihar electric hybrid aircraft uses to be able to taxi from the apron across the taxiways and finally onto the runway ready for departure. So the aircraft itself, you're saying, is going to be able to, from say from start to finish, so from the, from the apron be able to tax itself out there'll be no need for pushback tugs so you're saving on there on emissions especially with the tugs we know yep um tax itself out to the runway and take off using that that electric motor again saving on noise and once it's in the air it changes to the the turbine so basically you're on sustainable aviation fuel um, if you want to be, initially we'll be doing a lot of the trials on Jet A and Sustainable, um, but the idea is obviously with the growth in sustainable aviation fuels, new technology like ammonia fuel, um, powered fuel, stuff that's generated from clean sources to create fuel. These things are all coming. These are new technologies that will become prominent. So the fact that we'll be able to demonstrate that by about 2024 when we hope to have the aircraft flying means that that's the first step. So we really are making that first green dent. Ultimately, the view is to create a net zero aeroplane. We have to have an aircraft that ultimately creates no emissions uh, and is much cheaper to operate, etc. That's a little way off yet. The technology still has a way to go. There are great ambitions. There are great um, aspirations of what we should be doing. But let's start now. Let's start doing something that we know we can deliver that makes sense on technology that's proven. Turbines generators APUs are proven they're certified they create electrical power so the fact that you can use that with an electric motor which is basically a reduction of moving parts so you now have got an inspection cycle of 30 hours uh, 30,000 hours rather instead of 3,000 hours and you've got something that's got instantaneous torque you can reduce so much of the maintenance you can reduce so much of the component failure areas um, providing you've got a reliable power source and what we're saying with our system with hybrid is we know that there is a trusted, reliable power source there that can recharge the battery for the bit that we use for the takeoff. But more importantly, should you get a blockage, should you get a stoppage on your main generator source, you have got the backup of battery power, which will give you a period of time. We believe at the moment it's about 20 minutes. By the time the aircraft gets to first flight in 2024, technology should have improved that we may be up to anything up to 40 minutes. Now, what that gives you is redundancy. So what would be considered, even though it's a hybrid propulsion system and we use two electric motors in our system, it's a single propulsion system. It's a single lever operation, single pilot. But what we actually have is the redundancy of that second backup because the electric motors, highly unlikely they're going to fail. The only way they're going to fail is if you have a problem in your powered electronics. But the actual motors themselves are very simple. But if you did have a stoppage on your generator 
then the ability to have that battery reserve where you could maintain flight, go and find an airfield to land and find out what's going on, from a safety perspective, that's huge, absolutely huge. And I think it will give us the economics of single-engine operation, but with the reliability of twin-engine operation, which is massive. So from a customer's point of view, obviously one of the biggest costs and one of the biggest uh, bugbears, I think, for most airlines is turnaround time. So you've got the, the BHO with, with the passenger kind of configuration. Um, how quickly, how easy would it be to, to, to say you want to go from a, a passenger carrying capability to going to, say, putting the LD3 containers in? Is that a fairly, going to be a fairly quick? 15 process? minutes. That's what wow. we've targeted. I mean, basically, again, if you're going to create a utility aircraft, you cannot be having it sitting on ground wasting time whilst it takes an hour, two hours to reconfigure. That's pointless. So whilst we're in the commuter category of aircraft where you can have up to 19 seats, uh, part 23, we basically have targeted 18 seats because what we're doing is six, six, and six, palletized seating that basically when the big door goes up on the side, each of those pallets slide out, the LD3 slide in, it should be a 15-minute process. What is also interesting is you can now change the interior configuration to the aircraft to pretty much what you want. So if you want to put pallets in with captain's chairs on for a corporate VIP shuttle, you can do that. You want to put the cargo in, you put the LD3s in. You want to do corporate shuttle, those seats go in. Um, we could do bespoke interiors, palletized, for whatever the mission needs to be. So from a passenger's point of view, obviously one of the big things is to have all the, the kind of IFE, the, all the bells and whistles inside the aircraft. Uh, are you going to kind of pitch this as purely just a way to get from A to B, or are you, is it going to have that kind of luxury interior a possible kind of fit? Well, there's, what's interesting is the fact because of the height we're flying at, we're going to be able to make access of 3G networks, 5G networks, etc. Yeah. People will be able to use their assets on board. So they'll have their own assets. So there's no real need for us to fit an IFE system, first and foremost. Secondly, the types of flight mission we're doing. We intend to demonstrate flights between London and Manchester, and we should do that in about 45 minutes. And if we can charge £25 for that ticket each way, we'll fill every seat on that aeroplane. And this is, what we're, this is about affordable transport for ordinary people. This is about enabling people to live somewhere that's outside of traditional commuter zone, because nobody wants to be commuting two hours a day. But if it becomes less than an hour, now you can start living in far more affordable areas or where your family are or just where the schools are better, etc., because you know you've got a reliable form of air transport to get you to that city position. So what we're saying is 15 minutes curbside to airside. So park up, walk through the security, check in, get on the aeroplane, fly away. So basically what we need to do is we need to go out there and we need to go to the airfields around the world, in America, in the UK, in Europe, Africa, places like this, where we can show that aircraft can operate without interfering with people on an affordable basis, but on an economic basis. And so the ability to quick change the aircraft and change from configurations means that what you have is a utility workhorse. You've got something which does the passenger configuration, and yes, they'll be able to use their mobile phones because they're on the 3G network, 5G, etc. But these are short hops. We're not talking about going transatlantic or anything like that. This is really far more the sort of the coach model, the train model. It's let's get the aircraft out there for people to simply get on, get off, and make it more like a functional workhorse. Uh, that's what we're intending to do. That's what we intend to showcase. And by 2024 to 26, when we're doing our flight testing and certification evaluation, those are the demonstrations we're going to showcase. Um, it really is a great opportunity for people to have access to that level of air transport. 
one of the biggest problems, as we've said before, was um, the cost of flying between a lot of our regional airports here in the UK. I know for us it, it, it costs a phenomenal amount of money to, to purchase a ticket, say, from our local airport in Norwich to, say, Scotland or Aberdeen or Edinburgh. Um, with this aircraft, you are looking at changing that whole you know, ridiculous price of, of, of a ticket for a flight like, like that. Absolutely. And, and in order to do that, you can't do it with the existing assets. I mean, there are countless routes around the countryside where the margins are wafer thin. And any problem or any drop in your passenger load count, etc., your business model is dead uh, and you cannot survive. So you basically, what you've got to do is come up with a new type of aircraft with a better economics. And if you've got the better economics, then you can actually make the asset work. So what does that mean? How do you make better economics? Well, first and foremost, where you operate from. Does it make any sense for you to be operating from Heathrow, where you don't have the um, RPK capability, the revenue per, kil per kilometre, basically, of an A380 or a big jet? You're still going to have a lot of the same costs. If you go to somewhere like Elstree or Stableford or Biggin Hill or Red Hill or Northolt, these are places where you can get those costs down. So that's a big plus. But more importantly, in terms of the asset itself, if we can reduce the maintenance costing, if we can reduce the amount of fuel burn, the amount of pilots you need to fly it, if we can just chip away at all the aspects where we can bring that cost down, that means that you can now start going after routes and doing things that you weren't able to do before. So like I say, that London to Manchester route or uh, Sacramento to San Francisco, I used to live in San Francisco, and the, the congestion on the routes like the 101, etc., there are places like San Jose even up to the city uh, you've got airfields just near, I mean, Alameda Airfield, the old Naval Air Station airfield, is right by the Bay Bridge. So you could literally fly into that, drop off, people jump in a little boat launch, and you're into Fisherman's Wharf. Perfect. So it's starting to look at the air transport model differently. Uh, but if you're an asset owner, you've got to make that asset work. That asset has got to be working more than eight hours a day. Eight hours has really got to be your minimum. And so in order to do that, that may not all come from passenger. It's got to come from boxes. It's got to come from public service flights. It's got to come from a whole range of things where you can really make that asset work. And why not build a British asset to make that, that possible? That's what we're going to do. Who do you see your potential customers being? Do you see the big airlines as the smaller regional airlines, uh, private customers, um, flight schools? Or, or who do you see as being a, a kind of potential customer for the... It's a whole range. I mean, first and foremost, we're basically going to be operating a lot of the aircraft on contracts ourselves. Um, so we're basically putting a lot of the airframes out. There is going to be opportunity for airfields that want services that don't currently have them but may not necessarily have an airline or have somebody flying those routes. We could do that for them. You're looking at opportunities for governments, for special mission flights and capabilities. So things like border patrol, fisheries patrol, that type of thing. Uh, you've got the logistics companies. Um, Amazon, I think, next year is going to be 76 aircraft now. Mm. They are booming. Uh, so you've got likes of FedEx, UPS, Amazon, TNT, DHL, etc. As more people buy more and more online, it's being delivered that way rather than going to the high street. So that means you're going to have to have more capacity to bring these types of boxes around. So really volume is probably more key than payload in those scenarios. And the fact that we can do three LD3 containers, very much like the Cessna Sky Courier. That's yeah. obviously a new aircraft. Yeah. They got a 100 aircraft order from FedEx. So it proves that there's demand for that class of aircraft. But it's, it's a lovely aeroplane, um, and it's a super piece of kit. 
but we need to be pushing the boundaries now. We need to be going cleaner, we need to be using new materials, new technologies, um, and personally I believe the days of the twin turboprop metal aeroplane are done. Uh, we, we need to be pushing the boundary now. Let's, let's start building something that actually makes a lot more sense. So, moving to the pilot's point of view, um, on the flight deck, what is this aircraft going to be like for the, for, from the pilot, from the single pilot operation? Are we having glass, obviously glass screens, side stick or central uh, column? Or? Uh, the configuration is going to be down to the boffins who designed this thing more than I am. Uh, we're just currently talking to a very major avionics provider. It's interesting, since COVID and since we moved to Duxford, interest in the program has leapt forward. And that's because everybody's talking about sustainability and green, but also the supply companies. The partner companies that now have seen that which we've been talking about for six years, they now get it. They now understand why this aircraft works at this moment in time to do the job. So these companies providing avionics and systems, they're now joining us. They're going to get involved in the structural engineering phase over the next two years. I'm going to let them tell us what the configuration should be. But it has always been a vision that we should have a proper glass cockpit. Now, those people at the Valor team... Are very di- I'm very disappointed with them because actually what they produce for the new Valor, the V-22 replacement, is exactly what we're looking to put forward. It's basically <laughs> a full, proper glass cockpit. And what is useful about that, it means that we can change the displays depending on what the customer wants. So depending on the mission that it's flying and depending on who's doing what in which seat, you can now bring up the display on the screen, just like we saw with SpaceX with the new Dragon capsule. Whereas before we had all these switches and all these gauges in a capsule, now they've just got screens. Everything is now digitized and it's all touch screen and you can pick what you want on that display. Why wouldn't we do that? So that is definitely, it's going to be, uh, it'll be a luxurious and quite a cool place to be sitting and doing your work for the day. I think when, as a pilot, one of the things is having that, especially in like the, the, the Cirrus, is, is having that glass display with all your instruments in one place rather than having to look around at the kind of general and customizable i mean mm. it, it can be basically you can turn around as a pilot you say actually i want my aoa indicator there i don't want it there and you can actually move the stuff around and put it to where you're comfortable with and then of course you can have it on a pre-setting a bit like a, a, a seat in a car today where you can push button one two or three and the display changes to depending on which pilot's sitting in the seat so you can have your own display. I mean, I think that's, that's just logical. Why wouldn't you do that if you've got the capability? So looking forward to the future, not too distant future, because obviously you're, you're progressing fairly well. Um, when do you think we'll see the, the first production model ready to, to, to do its first run here at, at Duxford? Well, first we've got the prototype. So the, the first prototype aircraft, we're targeting end of 2024. Uh, we have got to go some to, to reach that target. The frustrating thing is funding is always the biggest issue. The lack of funding available to companies like us to do this is a UK challenge that has been there for a long time. Um, We've got to start doing things differently on that. So providing that we can get the funding support that we need to build the aircraft, that's the target. Get it up and flying. Then because of the new changes in Part 23 regulations on simplifying the process, it makes no sense to go through the same certification process for a crop duster as it does for a, a Bombardier or a G650 or something like that. Completely different aircraft of the type. So they are now tweaking the Part 23 regulations to make it simpler, less costly. And so we're hopeful that that will all be done and dusted by the time the aircraft then starts flying in 2024. We'll have a beautiful new set of simplified regulations, which we will then certify between 24 and 26. 
So first commercial operations, hopefully in 2026, all going well. Wow, great, great interview as always. That's um, I'm really enjoying it. Did you say we've got one more of these to look forward to, Nev? Yes, we have uh, part three next week when I get the editing machine uh, revved up uh, over the weekend. And uh, that certainly sparked a lot of uh, comment in the chat room. Yeah, indeed, absolutely. Yeah, we've been having, having a good read of that. Yeah. So we're going to hand things over to the next part of the show to our military expert. That is oh, Armando. Man, that's always the best part of the show. If you guys are willing to do it, I'll let Matt hit the button. Before we delve into the stories, we got some quick updates from last week. So it looks like that AN-124 that crashed in Russia last week is actually going to be a total write-off. Yeah, and I think we kind of called that when it happened. Real-time breaking news on PTUK. Um, Also, uh, back in July, if you guys remember, we talked about an A-10 that uh, had an in-flight emergency. That aircraft ended up making it back to its base. It had no canopy and uh, no landing gear and had just a bunch of other failures. I think it has some hydraulic failures. Uh, quick update on that one. That pilot, Major Brett DeVries from the 107th Fighter Squadron, was actually presented the Distinguished Flying Cross, which is a huge honor uh, in the U.S. Air Force or in the aviation community. Um, so there you go. Two quick updates. Now, our first story actually comes to us from military.com, and this was just put out by the U.S. Air Force this week, that the Air Force will now offer enlisted troops a path to pilot training. Um, The Air Force is giving enlisted airmen a chance to earn their wings through a program for aspiring pilots and crew. For the first time, they are accepting enlisted members as well as officers and space professionals to its Rated Preparatory Program, or RPP, according to a news release. The deadline to apply for this is spring 2021. Uh, The program is uh, available uh, December 31st through the U.S. Air Force's personal website. If you're in the Air Force, you know what it is. (laughs) So according to them, they talked about the rated preparatory program providing the Department of Air Force officers and for the first time enlisted applicants who are interested in cross training to a rated career field. So rated is our version of saying a pilot position or a navigator position. Um, The opportunity to gain and strengthen their basic aviation skills that came from uh, Colonel Scott Link, the Air Force, uh, the Air Crew Task Force Deputy Director in this release. Uh, This program will allow them to enhance their knowledge through developmental modules uh, and acquire valuable flight time in order to increase their competitiveness as candidates in future undergraduate flying training boards. This is why I put this in there. The program, in partnership with the Civil Air Patrol, does not actually produce aviators, but rather it works as a stepping stone to get these participants the necessary flight training to become a student pilot someday. The initiative was launched in 2019 to inspire those eager to become pilots, navigators, and other crew to get them the ability to get ahead by learning basic aviation skills before formal pilot training. Um, According to Captain Alex Johnson, a combat systems officer um, who also works in tactical air control, he says, just having the ground school and the instruction that you receive from the instructors here at the Civil Air Patrol has helped me learn my place in the air and not having to drink so much from a fire hose. The program supplements the Air Force's efforts to fix its years-long pilot shortage, uh, which despite COVID, uh, commentary here, is still going on. This program is still facing all uh, aviation units. Uh, The 
Air Force said that it would fall short of its goal of producing 1,480 new pilots across the force by the end of fiscal year 2020. Um, obviously, COVID had a, a huge thing to do with that. Um, so there you go. So the, there was there was a bunch of naysayers when this was announced this week and saying, wait a minute. So this is a program so you can study a bunch to become a student pilot someday. Um, and while that is a viewpoint, my viewpoint is um, having flown for the Civil Air Patrol for 26 years now, um, it is invaluable. So there is no replacement for seat time, for sitting in the airplane, especially uh, learning those crew resource management skills, learning the, the basic aviation terminology, the radio work. Um, the more time that you spend in the air, uh, the better your your ability and your aptitude is to go on to one of those um, aviation selection programs. So like everything else on social media, you know, people get super antsy and they want to be uh, armchair quarterbacks, whatever. But I think this is a great program. You know, if, if you if I was a, an enlisted, a senior airman, a staff sergeant in the U.S. Air Force, and I wanted in my mind one day to be an Air Force pilot, and a lot of people join the U.S. Air Force um, in other career fields or in, in other capacities to one day be able to apply as a pilot. Well, this affords you that opportunity to to learn some of those basic skills or maybe even say, hey, maybe it's not for me. Right. Maybe I get air sickness as soon as we walk out to the airplane and uh, and now you can choose a different career path. But it's this is great for the Civil Air Patrol, which is part of the, the total force. Um, and then it's also great for people to to learn some of those basic skills and then do even better on those aptitude tests, the flight aptitude batteries and and, uh, and some of those um, candidate programs. So there you go. If you're in the U.S. Air Force or you're planning on going into the U.S. Air Force enlisted. Um, and this is actually for officers, too. Uh, officers that are not pilots that are not in aviation careers, they can also go through this program. Uh, before Carlos uh, takes the next military story, a quick apology from me there. I just, uh, I, uh, I don't have a little bit of a what goes on behind the scenes here in the studio, and that is uh, producer John is always listening to the uh, YouTube feed at 18% in, in his headphones, uh, and apparently uh, I, I may have had that military stinger a little bit loud, uh, so loud that even at 18% he had to take his headphones off because it was. So apologies, ladies and gentlemen, if uh, I blew out your speakers just then when I, when I played oh. Armando's tune. It's but, fine, uh, <laughs> Matt. We just turned it to we just turned it to F fifteen taking off. Of course, off absolutely. Volume. That's what it was. It's, it's all part of the plan. Everything I do yeah. is planned. Hopefully, when you're listening to the audio version of this show, it'll all have been magically smoothed out. But uh, anyway, there we go. Yeah. Oh, uh, apparently we've got a comment, uh, a very interesting comment in the chat room there, Armando. Um, Stephen, uh, Stephen H is asking, "What's the maximum age that you can be to to join?" Uh, I presume he's talking about what what you referring were referring so to. So it's it's kind of a loaded question. So there are maximum ages to enlist in the United States Air Force, and that actually depends whether you're going active duty or into the Guard or Reserve. But more limiting than that is there's a specific age um, to apply for pilot training. Usually, it's between 28 and 34 kind of goes up and down and it's actually different for the guard and the reserve and active duty um so if you're actually interested or somebody's interested in this program what uh what i would recommend is a little bit of backwards planning going from okay well what's the maximum age and it's usually um what age can you be at graduation from undergraduate pilot training so what's the you know how old can i be at, at upt at the graduation and then work backwards from there to see 
Wow. Um, okay. So, yeah. so literally, as you say, a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, it really is. There's like everything else in the government. There's just not a simple, clear cut. Okay. Uh, Master suggested I can fix my audio fault in post, uh, which is a great idea. Jonathan Warner's headphones were busy buzzing, and uh, some guy called Nev Bound said at PTUK we always dial it up to eleven, which I think is very appropriate, especially when we're talking military. <laughs> let's be honest. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> All we're doing is saving the battery life of the hearing aids Good for those point. two APG absolutely, guys that yeah, are in, yeah, yeah, no, in the chat yeah. room. They can hear it from Bungie. <laughs> that's that's the great thing. Around the world, live. Uh, anyway, uh, shall we go on to the next story, Carlos? This is with you. Yeah, we're moving on to uh, an aircraft that's over 40 years old, but it is one of my favourite fighters. Oh, is it a TriStar L-1011 by any chance? No, this is a military <laughs> segment, Matt. Oh, not sorry, a... right, yes. So... Oh, good God. <laughs> Wait, Someone don't discount that there are military L-1011s. Yes, there is. I actually, have operated yeah. them for many years, haven't I? Yeah. yeah. Ah, well, and the Royal Air Force was stupid to get rid of them. Whoa, whoa, hang on, hang on. We, we can't let that go. Sorry, I'm going to get. I'm going to have the, the John busy shouting in my ear in a minute. Here, hang on a bit. Nev, did you know something about military there? Whoa, 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 whoa. It's only because I saw one doing an emergency landing at Edinburgh Airport. Right. On <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Okay. Well, anyway. we walked under them at Bruntingthorpe, didn't we? We drove yeah. right right around those military yeah. Elton Elevens at Brunting. Yeah. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you, Carl. Lost, do carry on. <laughs> yep, and it's the worst mistake we ever made getting rid of those. Anyway, moving on. Uh, this is because now it's been replaced by the A330. Anyway, the, uh, this next story is on the VoaNews.com. And this is all about F-16s. It's a bit of sad news, actually. Taiwan has grounded their F-16s after a second fighter accident in less than a month. Taipei, so this is in Taipei, Taiwan's Air Force has grounded its F-16 fleet after losing a plane on a training mission. Uh, President Tsai Langwen said on Wednesday the second loss of a fighter jet in less than a month at a time of increased missions to intercept Chinese aircraft. While Taiwan's Air Force is well-trained and well-equipped, mostly with US-made equipment, it is dwarfed by China's Beijing, claims the Democratic Island as his own has never fa- uh, renounced uh, the use of force to bring it under Chinese control. Uh, last month, Taiwan's defence minister said nearly $900 million had been spent uh, this year on scrambling the air force against Chinese incursions, describing the pressure that they are facing as great. Late on Tuesday, Taiwan's Air Force said uh, a US-built F-16 vanished shortly after taking off from the Hulun Air Base on the east coast of, uh, on a routine training mission. Uh, that followed the crash of an F-5 jet, which first entered service in Taiwan in the 1970s in late October. Speaking to reporters, Tsai said the Air Force had already grounded the F-16 fleet for checks. Uh, he said that I've asked the Ministry of Defence not to relax, or the Defence Ministry not to relax a bit on the defence and combat readiness to ensure national security. He said the Defence Ministry called on media not to speculate on what had happened to the F-16s or F-16, adding uh, that missions needed to continue uh, considering the ongoing threat from China. In response to the increasingly severe situation, the Taiwan Strait, the military has uh, continued to strengthen combat readiness training to ensure national security, it said. The loss of the F-16 is Taiwan's fourth military crash 
this year. Uh, in January, Taiwan's top military official was among eight people killed after a helicopter carrying them to visit soldiers crashed into mountainous area uh, near the capital, Taipei. Uh, the United States last year approved an $8 billion sale of F-16 fighter jets to Taiwan, a deal that would take the island's F-16 fleet to more than 200 jets, the largest in Asia. This is a jet, um, as Amanda probably knows, was uh, first sort of about in the early 1970, around 1974, uh, when this jet was uh, was built. I think Amanda, am I right in thinking there is a large amount of these parked up at one of the um, boneyards over in the US? Oh yeah, I, if you go out to Davis Mountain Air Force Base and the the defense whatever they call it, the reclamation center, something like that, there's probably two wings worth. Uh, air wings worth of uh mm. of 16s parked out they're not not even counting how many are on sticks all over the world <laughs> yeah. indeed yeah. Uh, right we're going to move on to the next story then if we may Nev. and uh, quick as you can please nev because we're a little behind schedule of course yes it's uh, the aviationist.com website it says that the first blue angels uh fa18c has arrived at the national air and space museums Uwe Harvey Centre, uh, of course, we've been there uh, previously, haven't we? Mm. Uh, on uh, 18th of uh, November, uh, an FA-18C of the US Navy Flight Demonstration Squadron, parted by Commander Frank Weiser, uh, landed at Washington Dulles Airport and taxied, taxied to the Uwe Harvey Centre in Chartilly, where it's uh, going to be put on display after preparation work. It's the first Blue Angels aircraft and the first F-18 the uh, museum has acquired. Uh, the uh, aircraft, uh, 163439, is one of the first sea models built, delivered to the US Navy in 1987. It flew with eight squadrons, including the Strike Fighter Squadron uh, 86 uh, during Operation Desert Storm in 1991 before being turned over to the Blue Angels in 2015. It was retired after flying the final formation flight with the team on the 4th of November 2020. Uh, the team is in fact transitioning to the newer, larger Boeing uh, FA-18EF Super Hornet for the 2021 20, uh, flight demonstration season. As reported in a previous article, the team flew the Boeing FA-18A single seat and FA-18B two-seat Hornet from 1986 until 2010, then transitioned to the FA-18C single seat and FA-18D two-seat Hornet from 2010 until 2020. The Blues flew the Hornet for a total of 34 years, longer than any other aircraft in the history of the team. Many current Blue Angels fans have never seen the team fly in any other aircraft. Prior to their 1986 transition to the Hornet, the team flew the A4 Skyhawk. Uh, after 34 years of service in the U.S. Navy Flight Demonstration Squadron, the Blue Angels, it's incredible this aircraft uh, has the opportunity to live a second life on display at the Smithsonian for generations to come, said uh, Lieutenant Brian Abe, uh, maintenance officer for the Blue Angels, in a press release. Uh, in preparation for display, the Blue Angels maintenance team will continue to work with the museum and other Navy entities to ensure the aircraft is safe for public viewing. Fantastic opportunity to see this aircraft in the Smithsonian. Absolutely. It's a, great, it's a great museum, isn't it? Yep. That's where the geeks quite often have an event, isn't it? Mm. In, in Uwe Harvey, he says, struggling to say it. Yeah, yes, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful museum. It's huge and it's free. Anytime wow. that anybody gets a chance 
and all you have to do is just schedule a couple hour layover uh, at Washington Dulles International Airport, and you can take a you know a ride share over to to Udvar-Hazy. Totally worth it. Wow, fantastic. Okay, that, uh, that was my background until I changed it to a beautiful Barry St. Edmonds. <laughs> beautiful Barry St. Edmonds, just up the road from us. There we go. <laughs> Lovely. All right, thanks, Armando. Great as always. That is the military done and dusted for this week. We're going to move on to the next part of the show. It's the final part, actually, um, and it's time to start enjoy a the next episode of the Plain Truth. And uh, this week, myself and Captain Al, we're talking about engine failure failures and Fadek. Hello and welcome to another Plain Truce, and this week we're going to be talking about engine failures. Joining me this week, as always, it's Captain Al. Hi, Captain Al. Hello there, and <laughs> good day to you all. I hope you're having a good day. So uh, engine failures is what I'd like to talk about today. But I was just uh, interested really to know what are the procedures involved when it comes to making a decision uh, about an engine failure? Even as a novice, I'm aware of the fact that there is redundancy in place and that planes can fly perfectly well with three engines, two engines, etc. Basically, what are the procedures? Okay, well, you mentioned redundancy, and that's a very good starting point. If you're operating a two-engined aeroplane, so a 757, A320, you're not going to plan to depart with one less. However, if you're on a four-engined aeroplane, like a 747 or an A380, there is provision for a three-engine ferry flight. So it wouldn't be with passengers on board, but you could knowingly fly it with one engine inoperative. So I thought we'd just cover that one whilst we were talking about redundancies, if you like. We'll contain ourselves to two-engine aircraft. And in very simple terms, there is, on a takeoff, a decision point. It's a pre-calculated speed, and it's called V1. If an engine failure occurs before V1, you have sufficient runway ahead of you to stop without any great damage to the aeroplane. After V1, under 99.999% of the times, you won't. So you will get airborne at the rotate speed. Now, it may not necessarily be at the same speed as V1. So you might have a gap where you're too fast to stop, but too slow to fly. And it's especially so on wet runways, but I'll spare that for another time. So sequence events, V1 rotate. So if we've reached V1, we're going to go flying. We wait for rotate and we pull back on the side stick of the oak and encourage the aircraft to fly. The next critical speed is V2, which is our minimum single engine speed. And that happens pretty quickly. So that's the speed that we're going to climb away at because that speed is the minimum speed that we want to operate the aeroplane on one engine because the engines are out on the wing. There's one each side. And if one's not working, the aeroplane is going to yaw. So the working engine is going to try to drive the nose away from the working engine. It's going to try to spin it around like a top, which we're not going to want because that will take us into an uncontrolled state. So the aeroplane has to be going fast enough for the forces over the rudder to counteract that yawing motion. That's the sequence of events. What we have done before we get to this point 
is calculate what weight we can carry on the aeroplane based on the functions of things like the runway length, the temperature, the pressure, runway surface, whether it's wet, dry, contaminated with snow, etc., etc. And that will be our maximum payload because that effectively determines what speeds we're going to use. You can imagine that in days of old, and I'm old enough to remember them, there were quite <laughs> complex tables on paper. For each runway, there would be a dry performance, a wet performance, and numerous pages for contamination, depending on whether it was slush, snow, etc., etc. And you'd go into a table and it would all be worked out for you. These days, it's all done on a computer. So that's the, the maths behind it. What actually happens? Well, the aeroplane is designed to be able to be flown with one engine inoperative. That's part of the certification process. And as long as we operate the aeroplane within the manufacturer's envelope, then the aeroplane will fly perfectly well on one engine. And even if we've decided to have what we call reduced thrust takeoff, you know, in exactly the same way as in your car, when you're, you're pulling away from stationary, you don't just sort of floor the accelerator or the gas pedal. You'll use whatever thrust or engine power is necessary. So that's what we'll do. We'll, we'll calculate a reduced thrust. So even if you've taken off with reduced thrust, there is still sufficient power out of that engine operating at reduced thrust to safely fly away from the ground. Now, there are some considerations. So, for example, if you were taking off at Manchester on runway 05, there is something called the Pennines that happen not too far away from the airport. So yeah. it's, a, it's a range of hills. So you're going to need to turn away from those hills. So what we have are what are called engine failure procedures. So ordinarily, you would just climb straight ahead because when you turn an aeroplane, the overall lift reduces, so you're not climbing at the same rate. But that's all well and good if you can outclimb the terrain or the obstacles, but if you can't, you're going to have to turn away from them. So we have, therefore, an engine fail procedure that will effectively turn you away from the hills. And that, that's something that remains pretty much the same for that runway, regardless of weight. So we have a, an option. We can obviously put the working engine into full power if we want. And if we choose to do that, maybe because we don't feel that the aeroplane is climbing at the rate that we would like, you know, it makes you feel a bit more comfortable if it goes up faster. Or indeed, something's happened. For example, the aeroplane is actually heavier than people thought, so you're not getting the same amount of performance out of it. You can select full power. It's called TOGA, takeoff go-around power. And obviously, now you're working the engine at its maximum performance. So single engine, that use of that full power is limited to 10 minutes. Obviously, if you're still going to hit something at 10 minutes, well, then keep going, my friend. Because <laughs> yeah. one thing's for certain, if the aeroplane hits something, the outcome's not good. But mm. uh, the, the manufacturers would like you to limit it to 10 minutes. Uh, then, basically, once you have got the aeroplane sufficiently away from the ground and obstacles, what you would then do is level off. You would, of course, already raise the landing gear as soon as the aeroplane started to climb. But you've got flaps and slats out, so you don't need those anymore. So you level the aeroplane off, accelerate and retract the flaps and slats, making the wing clean. And then it's largely a case of deciding what you're going to do. Now, this is where it becomes a judgment call. Most times, you're going to go back to where you departed from. 
However, if you've taken off from somewhere that, say, has a short runway, somewhere like Santorini in the Greek islands, the runway is not going to be long enough because we're much heavier than we were when we landed there. Right. So we're going to have to go somewhere else. It also may be that you've taken off from somewhere that is particularly foggy, so you're not going to go back there. And these are all things that you will have discussed on the ground with regards to your contingency planning for such an event. So most of the time you'll go back to where you start, not always, and part of your planning process is deciding where you're going to go. You are not going to go to your planned destination unless that happens to be very, very close to you. So say, for example, if you were doing a flight from uh, Stansted to Luton, by the time you have gone through your checklists and cleaned the aeroplane up, you might as well go to Luton as to go back to Stansted because you're just as quick. So more often than not, your destination is going to be further away. So the manufacturers will have a line that will come up in your checklist or on an electronic checklist, and it will say, land as soon as possible, and it will be in red, thereby indicating that the manufacturer really would prefer you to have this aeroplane safely on the ground soon. Right. One of the things I guess I'm sort of saying from this essentially is the engine may well have started, but you may not yep. be aware there's a problem with it until you then try and take off. So in that scenario there, I guess it's difficult to make the call, I suppose, at that point, if it's still pulling, I, I guess. It's... Yeah, so there are lots of factors. So if we look at the engine failure itself, so there are three categories that we talk about, really. There's engine failure without damage, engine failure with damage, and an engine fire. So if we have a look at the, the first one, engine failure without damage. So like most cars, most modern aeroplanes have something called a FADEC, a full authority digital engine controller or computer, depending on which book you read. And it's basically a computer that does all of the engine management, if you like. Yeah. So when you operate the thrust lever, you're not actually physically operating valves. You're sending signals to a very expensive computer that decides what it's going to do. And it has gazillions of sensors going into it yeah. and one of its jobs is to look after the engine to protect that engine if the computer the fadec has a glitch it might decide to shut the engine down now on the airbus as an example there are two identical fadecs for each engine and they 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 flip-flop on each start cycle so when one is looking after the engine the other one is sat in the background in a sort of supervisory role so it can take over so you've had a sort of significant glitch that's affected two computers, but that could just be an electrical thing. They do have completely independent electrical supplies, but nonetheless, we all know computers can glitch out. Mm -hmm. Or it may have been that one of the gazillions of sensors has, has gone rogue and the FADEC has gone, well, I'm not quite sure what's happening with this engine, so I'll protect it. We have an engine failure with damage. So something mechanically has gone wrong with this engine and that's the, so it, this sort of blade scenario that I'm... That it I've can be the blades, with, yeah. yeah. It can be a shedding of blades. It can be a, a whole host of things. It could be an oil pump that's seized, so that it's caused the engine to seize, if you like. It could be a, a myriad of things, because there's, depending on how many stages there are to your engine, there's lots of moving parts in there. So it could be any one of those that's got, got an issue. And then, of course, we've got the engine fire scenario, which is the next sort of tier up. So something's gone fairly seriously wrong in the engine and it's caught fire. Now, 
Jet engines do operate at quite high temperatures. So if you have an oil leak within the engine or something like that, it is going to catch fire because the core of the engine itself is ordinarily on fire. So right. yes, by definition, uh, you know, they're, they're the sort of three categories, if you like, and your, your course of action is very much determined on, on what you're presented with. But yeah, engines can just run down and stay at idle. So you, you might not be able to get any thrust out of it other than idle, which is kind of akin to your car going into limp mode. Yeah. And basically the FADEC is going, well, I'm not really happy to give you any power out of this engine. So I'll, I'll keep it running because it provides you hydraulic power, electric power, etc. And it's not classed as a, as a shutdown, an involuntary shutdown. But let's just keep it at that. And uh, I, I can keep the engine safe is what it's trying to do. I mean, I've had a thing where m- my car has gone into limp mode. There's been no particular reason for it. And I've just basically pulled over at the side of the road and I've turned the ignition off. I've turned it on again and started it. And then it's been fine for another four weeks. And now, I mean, again, is that something that you can do in flight if you like restart the engine or turn it off and on again like like you would a computer absolutely so if the engine has just run down and there's no evidence of damage so you look at the instrument yeah well obviously if it's on fire you'll have had to have used the extinguishing system within the engine to try to put that out and by definition that engine is damaged if it's been on fire (laughs) yeah but if it's just an engine failure without any evidence of damage, which is typically going to be just a glitch with the FADEX, mm-hmm. because they are computers, yeah. yet there is a whole uh, section in the quick reference handbook and within the checklist that says, if no damage, attempt relight. And that's exactly what you would do. You would turn the engine off and then you turn it back on, which by definition resets the fadex and you'll try to start it i'm assuming obviously you're in the air so the other engine is working fine so you're still making your final decisions about what you want to do next i guess and if that engine should relight you would then continue with your journey as normally essentially the instance over or would you then make a decision i i i guess that's down to the pilot is it your decision as to what happens next so that's one of those things that we uh, describe as the captain's broad shoulders And on the Airbus, for which I've flown for many, many years, an engine just running down is exceptionally rare event. So I would therefore say, right, we'll relight the engine and we will land ASAP because this isn't something that's routine. The safest place to analyze why the engine ran down is on the ground. I'm not paid enough to be a test pilot. (laughs) And I don't know know how the people behind you would feel about you being a test pilot as well. And I'm certainly not an engineer. So great that we've got the thing relit. You almost need more answers, don't you? So by relighting the engine, what you have done is you've taken away the immediate requirement to land. So now you can start to look at things like your weight and where the most suitable place to go to would be. Because effectively, you're now back to a two-engine aeroplane. But you have to take into consideration the fact that a short while ago, you were in a one-engine aeroplane. So it's not just a case of, oh, well, these things happen, let's carry on. That that is very much a commander's decision, a captain's decision. But at the end of the day, we're not paid to play God with people's lives. No, no. And and obviously safety is the the utmost there, isn't it? So, you know, you've got to make the decision based on the fact that, you know, you've got to make the decision for everyone else's benefit, I suppose. Yes. Now, I mentioned the FADEC. It is a million-dollar computer, and I kid you not, 
The computer itself is about the size of a laptop and it comes in a very expensive aluminium flight case. And the last time I inquired, a FADEC for an engine for an A320 was well over a million dollars. Right, gosh, cheap then. So I have had cause to take them on the flight deck with me to rescue another aircraft. Right. And when the engineers hand it over, they're basically giving you a million dollars in a in a, a flight case that's not much bigger than a small carry-on board suitcase. Wow. And they say, don't lose it. It's worth a lot of money. It oh, is. Uh, if we could perhaps just touch on the, um, the four-engine scenario there. So if you lose one engine, then uh, procedures are slightly different because you've got three others to play with, presumably. Yes. So this is an area that, again, comes down to a whole host of circumstances on the day, if you like. So if this was planned as a normal flight with passengers, so you're starting off with four engines, and there you are in the cruise, for a set of reasons, you end up with one engine in operatives, you're down to three. The rules permit you to carry on to the destination. Whether you elect to do that or not is, again, down to the captain in consultation with the company, et cetera, et cetera. And there have been cases in the past where uh, a jumbo jet from somewhere in the US has flown across the Atlantic with one engine inoperative. And at the end of the day, a risk assessment is done and you, you make your bed accordingly. The issue with that is if you were to lose a second engine on the same side that the first engine failed, You've now got two working engines, but they're all on one side. Right. So earlier on, when I talked about the controllability issues, you've now got quite a big controllability issue. That's not to say it's going to fall out the sky. It won't. But it's a bit more of a handful than it was. Yeah, and, and also, presumably, the aircraft is handling very differently when you've lost one of the engines. Well, one of the key factors is that you've halved the amount of thrust that you have. So now you are not in a position to stay flying at the same altitude that you were assuming that you were in the cruise. Because funnily enough, if that was the case, then you just turn one off in the cruise to save some <laughs> money and some fuel. So what will happen is that you'll set maximum continuous thrust on the operating engine. And by inference, that engine can stay at that thrust setting indefinitely until it runs out of fuel. But the aeroplane does need to descend. So what you will do is you'll select maximum continuous thrust, maintain a airspeed, and there are a couple of different strategies as to whether you're just going to gently drift down and maintain the speed or whether you need to avoid any sort of terrain. So if you're flying over the Himalayas or the Andes, places where there's high terrain, you might need to avoid that. But basically, with one engine inoperative, the aeroplane is gently going to descend because it can't stay up there because it's too heavy to and it hasn't got enough thrust. Well, I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating subject and I'm sure it's one we'll come back to at another time. But for now, Captain Al, thank you. You're welcome. I love doing those segments with our. We, in fact, actually, we had a little recording session uh, just before we started the show, actually. So it was lovely to sort of have a little bit of a catch up. That's the best thing about doing this, you know, get to chat to Al afterwards, which is always, always a pleasure. But uh, anyway, it's worth, yes, yeah, worth saying that. as well. If you do, if anyone's watching and you do have some, uh, some ideas for oh, what yes. you want to ask, uh, Captain Al and yeah. Matt can obviously get me now because we've actually got another recording session booked in for Thursday of this week. So please do get your questions in, and uh, I can put them straight to Captain Al on Thursday. Oh yes, yes, get those in. Podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Indeed, time to wrap up then. I think 
So, yes, time to wrap up the show. So just a quick uh, FYI for all our listeners. Uh, this is all to do with our Christmas show that we'll be recording to play out on Christmas Day. Oh, is it too early to uh, mention that word? No, no. <laughs> Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> so as a special treat for all our Patreon and PayPal donators as a way to say thank you, normally the Christmas show, which we pre-record, is just pre-recorded with us and our guests. But if you are a Patreon or PayPal donator of the show, this year we're going to do something new. We're going to invite all you donators on as an audience to watch us record what is every year... A car crash. (laughs) One heck of a show. And trust me, the bits you don't see on the actual broadcast... Will will never, ever be aired, ever. So, you know, it's a real opportunity to to watch the the, the chaos that's uh, that's going on. And we've got some great guests lined up as well, haven't we, for this year? Yeah, so if anyone who becomes a Patreon donator or PayPal donator between now and Christmas will be added onto that list, we'll get an email... Of all our Patreon and PayPal donators current, all your emails have sent, been sent out to you, so you uh, check your inboxes, and uh, don't forget to send us a reply so we can put you on the guest list for that show. Uh, we're going to record that uh, in the beginning of December, and uh, that'll be broadcast on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. We have got some epic guests joining us for the Christmas show already. Uh, those of you will know we've got some uh, some guests coming on uh, from some of the biggest podcasts. Uh, are, are we allowed to name some of them? Should we, should we've we, should got, we, should we name we've some got, of them? I think we've, we've poached most of APG. We've got, uh, <laughs> we've got uh, half of the Airplane Geeks uh, mm-hmm. guys joining us as well. Uh, we've, got, uh, we've got a couple of the hosts from that, uh, that other show, The Plane Safety Podcast no, as well, no, joining us. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, for those of you, we know he's got so many fans on the show. Paul Papadimitri is joining us from the Layovers podcast as well uh, yeah. on that show. Are we allowed to mention our special guest? And we have managed to secure a, a an uber special guest for the They're show. all special guests, obviously. They're all special guests. But we have got some, uh, some, some star, uh, star-studded cast, I should say, star-studded guests. And uh, we have managed to ask uh, a certain young lady from the Discovery Channel series Flying Wild Alaska and we are going to have Ariel Tweeto on yeah. as a guest on our Christmas and, and no one is more surprised than us that she said yes, frankly. So <laughs> really the email, the email came yeah. in yesterday and yeah. honestly, I'm not, gonna, I'm not joking, guys. It, Ariel is really, really stoked so about coming fun, on the yeah. Christmas show. So, so don't forget, if you want to become a patron or a PayPal uh, donator of the show uh, you can find the details over on our website and then you'll be sent an email out uh, for the guest list to join us as an audience for the recording of the Christmas show so there we go mm, don't forget those social media links as well if you want to follow us on Facebook Twitter or Instagram search for Plain Talking UK that WhatsApp number if you want to get your picture on the green screen behind Matt or even behind me uh, you can send those to plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six email the show podcast at plaintalkinguk.com and that website all the w's dot plaintalkinguk.com 
And don't forget to check out the shop on there where you can buy yourself a PTUK T-shirt in time for Christmas if you get one in now. And you can also grab yourselves one of our PTUK coffee slash Earl Grey mugs as well (laughs) on there as well. So don't forget uh, to also subscribe to our YouTube channel. We want to try and get as many subscribers on that list before the end of the year. So if you don't already subscribe, make sure you click on that subscribe button. We will love you for it. And don't forget as well, if you do your shopping on Amazon, uh, I don't think I have this week. Sorry, Matt. Oh, uh, you can really? click on our Amazon link uh, through the website and uh, we get a small referral fee on there. It doesn't cost you a penny. And like I said before, if you want to become a Patreon or a PayPal donator, the links are all on our website to, for you to click on. And also, if you want to donate to that all-important uh, Reno Air Races, uh, we had Bob Mills on the show uh, for, at the top of the show today. Don't forget, you can take yourselves over to airrace.org forward slash save. What's the little line thing again? Save dash. Save dash, the dash races. Um, yeah, you can take yourself over there. The link's on the screen. And Matt will also put uh, the link in our show in notes, the show notes as yeah, always. Absolutely. So we're going to say a big thanks again to our guest, Bob Mills, for joining us on the show. And thanks to Armando as well for arranging all that and sorting all that out. So thanks to you, Armando. And we're going to say a big thanks to all our hosts. Nev, thanks to you. And thanks to Armando. Thanks to uh, our producer, John, as well, for putting everything together, as always, for the show and our show notes. And also a big thanks to Matt, who has been legendary at pressing all the right (laughs) buttons this week <laughs> so and uh, just one last big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the chat room all the chat room family it's been fantastic to see you all in yeah. there and don't forget apg are going to be starting very soon so don't forget to take yourselves over to the airline pilot guy stream and they'll be streaming their show very very soon so it just leaves me to say a big thank you and a big uh, thanks to everyone and have a great weekend and uh, from me here in my home studio and from Matt in the PTUK Master Suite studio, from Nev in his NevTech studio and from Armando in his glorious studio at work. Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend and see you all again next week. Everyone say goodbye. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Bye. Bye, everybody.